Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us as we go down the literary gun barrel for the first time in 2024. What says 2024? What says Happy New Year like John Gardner's win, lose, or die? Uh, I don't know about that, but uh, Happy New Year, Scott. Happy New Year, buddy. Happy Happy New New Year, Year, Josh. This is what we're doing here on Bond by Numbers to ring in the new year. My name is Scott Powell, and with me, as always, my reader in arms across the pond, Josh Double O Taylor is here. Now, Josh, I think some would be forgiven for asking why are we doing this to ourselves, having in the past met with John Gardner's less than um, compelling efforts. We've seen some craziness through these John Gardner's, and I don't think win, lose, or die necessarily stops that. No, we definitely have a change of pace, a different and an an angle, if you will, uh, in terms of his storytelling in this in this book because he's focusing on bringing Bond back to the Navy, uh, which is something very Fleminging, I think, or his at least it's an attempt for him to kind of reconnect with the Fleming kind of Bond. Yeah, and. But again, the illusions of Top Gun stand in my just keep they <laughs> they kind of blot out any sort of originality in, in in this manner for me. Like I was I was saying the other day, I literally expect Maverick and Goose to show up, especially in one sequence where it involves the the ejection seat canopy. And for those who have seen Top Gun, you know what I'm referring to, uh, the original Top Gun, of course. Now. In this book, though, we're not dealing with F-14s, we're dealing with Harriers, uh, which famously, if if you know your action films, that's what uh, Jim uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger flies in the climax of True Lies, James Cameron's uh, big action film, spy parody, I don't know what really to call it, but it was a pretty fun film. If you remember Mm -hmm. him using a Harrier against a terrorist, and you have like his daughter played by Elijah Dushku, uh, the future faith of... uh, Buffy, for those who know who Elijah Dushku is. Uh, yep, yep. And, and then you have, of course, you, you know, like him riding a horse through a building and off a building and so many crazy shenanigans. And of course, it's uh, so it does feel in many ways like a John Gardner novel, if you think about it. <laughs> uh, but here we got Bond going into the Navy. We got Harriers being used. We got aircraft carriers. We got uh deceptive women we got the rug being pulled out underneath us a little bit of twists in this story um so it'll be fun to break down win loser die and see see whether or not gardner is able to bring a refreshing change to what he's done before to that same formula or is he going to do the same old tricks again and uh we're just sort of like plodding along well one of the things josh that's kind of wrapped up in what you just said and something that we've criticized gardner's books for along the way is just how chock full they are with characters and this story certainly doesn't let up with that we have more characters in win lose or die than perhaps any other of the gardner stories several of whom are necessary for context of course but we'll we'll get into it we'll get into that and we'll get into everything about this book very very soon but let us just begin by thanking listeners for checking out bond by numbers here in 2024 it is our final season here on the podcast we got several episodes left to go before we wrap it up for good so yeah thanks for joining us and we hope that you'll enjoy this book review
Well, let's get into it then, buddy. Uh, I got a summary prepared first, about 15 minutes, so if you're familiar with the story, by all means, skip ahead and we'll get you on the other side for our scoring of the angle. Or if you do want a refresher, then sit back, relax, and uh, I'll take you through the strokes right now. All right. James Bond is saved from further administrative tedium, as the novel opens, thanks to a raid on the son of Takahashi, a Japanese oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz. Owing to MI6 surveillance intel, M explains to Bond that the assault on the tanker was made by a terrorist group known as BAST, Brotherhood of Anarchy and Secret Terror. He discloses that the Takahashi affair was only a warm-up, though, a test ride of terror which Bast intends to improve upon for a much bigger operation. Land C-89 is a joint exercise that will see elite troops, naval and air forces of leading NATO powers participate in a war game, a simulation of tech-era military collaboration. Behind the curtain of this show, a top-secret stewards meeting is planned to take place on board the HMS Invincible, one of the Royal Navy's three Invincible-class carriers. VIPs from America, the UK, and Russia will be working together at this summit in recognition of the recent thawing of tensions between the powers of East and West. M shares more about Bast and its heavy intention to strike during Lancy 89. He then tells Bond that he will be the nanny for those VIPs on board Invincible as the head of security. In order to assume that role, though, he's being sent back to the Navy, where he will upgrade his skill set. He's got less than a year. Gardner takes readers to Yeovil, Somerset, and Bond's training at the Royal Naval Air Station. His training includes acquaintance and expertise in flying the Harrier jet. Why? Well, it's the late 1980s, isn't it? The intrigue hits the page faster than you can say Louis Gossett Jr., a rogue pilot, Spaniard Felipe Pantano, is working for Bast and fires a Sidewinder missile at Bond during a flight before disappearing with his jet. We have a Thunderball-esque plane theft here, it would seem. Watch this space. Not only does his time at Yeovil earn Bond Top Gun wings, it also results in his meeting a key player in the Lancy 89 operation, First Officer Clover Pennington. Described as a dark-haired, black-eyed beauty, Irish Penny seems to take an immediate liking to Bond. Of course she does. They share an intimate dinner, and Bond makes a move, but retracts eventually when she tells him that they're to be shipmates on board Invincible. Bond is surprised to hear that she will head a 15-strong team of Wrens, officers from the Women's Royal Naval Service, who will be carrying out a series of tasks and conveniences for the dignitaries. Bond struggles with the bigotry and old-school superstition of women on board, but Gardner doesn't linger in it like Fleming might have done. It's nearly 1990, after all. What irritates 007 most is that there are details to this operation that have been kept from him. Plus, the resonating threat of the Sidewinder, it all leads him to put in an emergency call to M. M agrees to meet with Bond at his home, 
Gardner tells us that they spoke for nearly an hour, but saves us the details of another info dump. The meeting seemingly satisfied Bond's questions, but the reader gets no closer at this point to understanding Bast or its goals. We're just told that Bond experiences the start of a, quote, whole world of churning worries, end quote, that will continue for the next few weeks. One thing we are led into, however, is that Operation Christmas Horse is about to be sprung, spearheaded by Tanner and M, on the back of Bond's suspicions and some of their own intel that someone is certainly trying to rid him from the scene. The surveillance obtained by M reinforces the suspicions that Bast will target him again during the Christmas season. So, Bond agrees to being used as bait and will spend Christmas at the Villa Capricciani on the island of Ischia. Ischia has been used by MI6 in the past as a wellness retreat. Think along the lines of Shrublands from Thunderball, only without the full health clinic mop-up. Bond's time at the Villa will offer him a rest before the Land Sea 89 assignment, if he is lucky, but the chief purpose of it is to flush out the other assassination attempts. If 007 can catch one or two Bast operatives, then the advantage might swing a little more in MI6's favor. At the villa, Bond meets and falls in love with Beatrice Maria Dalavici, the local support given to him by M. Oh yes, you heard that right. Bond falls in love with her. Maybe it's the memories of Tracy floating around his head this time of year. Maybe it's the festive season. Maybe it's the fact that this ageless secret agent is finally starting to age. Or maybe it's just Gardner, forcing in some romance only to whip it cheaply away again later. He's done it before. Whatever the case, Bond is aware that, quote, in this short space of time, Beatrice had started to command his heart, end quote. The two spend a nice holiday, even exchanging presents and eating Christmas dinner together. But hackles are raised when First Officer Pennington is spotted in Iskia by Bond. What the heck is she doing there? Eventually, inevitably, a bast car bomb soon ends their love as Beatrice is blown to smithereens. Luckily, Clover Pennington was on site trailing Bond and had been there to save him in time. Bond is transported by Pennington to a small military base near Caserta called Northanger. He's briefly crestfallen as he recovers from the blast and the realization of Beatrice's death. There are doubts in his mind about the explosion and its smoke. He has a hard time understanding the mechanics of the blast, as well as he remembers it, or Beatrice's willingness to rush on ahead of him. But he puts them to the back of his mind. At the base, second-in-command Julian Farsi tells him it's a top-secret NATO base for the training and transfer of personnel. Bond loosely agrees to this because Farsi makes the right sounds and he seems to know a lot about the operation, plus M's insistence of deep cover. He then meets a man named Toby Lellenberg, the commanding officer of Northanger. Bond doesn't particularly take to the either of these men, but he does buddy up with Toby long enough to enjoy a second Christmas dinner. Before long, Bond is sitting in a Sea King helicopter and on his way to HMS Invincible, with memories of another Christmas love stolen from him by a terrorist group. Curiously, he seems less vengeful about finding the masterminds behind the attack on himself and Beatrice, oddly demoting the event beneath other responsibilities. 
It's at this point in the story that Gardner decides to give us two major info dumps. The first, delivered to readers and Bond by the Invincible's captain, Rear Admiral Sir John Walmsley, It's all about Operation Lancey 89. The war game, the geography, the personnel, the importance. It's all there. The second, at long last, is the big villain dossier. Normally, delivered at the start of the books, Gardner's blether on Bast, the baddie here, comes midway through the text. For some reason, best known to himself, he leaves Bond in the dark about Bassam Baraj, even though M knows quite a bit. Born Robert Vesevitsky in New York, Bassam Baraj is a master of disguise who grew and pruned away multiple aliases over his time. His life of crime started small, grew big, and eventually incorporated demonology. Because why not? Late 1980s, satanic panic, it's all kind of fitting in there with the jet fighters. Inspired by the mythical ancient Egyptian creature with heads of snake, human, and cat, Baraj fashioned his organization, Bast, around a three-headed hierarchy. We learn at this point that he was actually impersonating Toby Lellenberg back at Northanger. The real Toby, and the real Julian for that matter, were drugged and asleep, like most of the other soldiers on the base. And that's what Bast is planning to do on board the Invincible. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Gardner glosses over how rich and powerful Barrage has grown, and we just accept that he's a thinly sketched supervillain. What is interesting about him, though, is the revelation that he isn't as devoted to the cause as his acolytes are. In fact, he plans on disappearing alone with the money once he ransoms the dignitaries on board the Invincible for $200 billion each. A ridiculous sum. I mean, it's close to Dr. Evil money here. Bast is not an organization concerned with reshaping the world or its politics. It's simply a vehicle for Baraj's own greed and ambition. This makes him a little different to some other hyperbolic villains from the franchise. Anyway, things go to crazy town thick and quick as Gardner ushers into the story the VIP retinues. Secret Service personnel, special branch agents, and, just for a pinch of why not, a sexy Russian attaché called Nikki Ratnikov, who, we are told, quote, would have given a tweak to the loins of even a devout monk, end quote. Predictably, she only has eyes for Bond. There are really too many cooks in the kitchen here, and the reader can't help but skip over these characters like speed bumps on the story's pavement. Fleet Admiral Sir Geoffrey Gould, Admiral Gudion, Admiral Pauker, Joe Israel, Bruce Trimble, Mr. Brinkley. The crew intensifies, and so does our whiplash as we jump from one character to another page after page. One of the Americans, a commander of naval intelligence posing as a Secret Service dude named Edgar Morgan, is killed within hours of coming on board, and this gives Bond his first real problem. It also gives us, as readers, a chance to get away from the introduction of even more characters. A quick search of the body informs Bond that he was double-checking lists, and his own checks confirm that lead Wren, Sarah Dealey, might be off the level. When Bond interviews Dealey, the Wren plays dumb for an instant, but then seizes what she sees as a moment of weakness in Bond and tries to kill him. Luckily for him... A marine on guard heard his cry when she need him, and he helped control the situation. Sarah Dealey is brought to the brig, but is uncooperative. 
Meanwhile, we learn that Edgar Morgan's replacement is on the way from America, a guy named Dan Woodward. The real Dan Woodward is apprehended in London, and Abu Hamarik occupies his place. Conveniently, no photograph of Woodward is available, so his is an identity easy to assume. Bond calls in for interrogation support as well, to help work over the recently restrained Sarah Dealey. And on the final leg to the Invincible, Dan Woodward travels with another imposter, supposed interrogator Donald Speaker. It's a little unbelievable that these men are known by reputation only, especially when the fate of the world is at risk. But there you have it. Just like that, at least three Bast operatives are situated on board the Invincible, moments before the VIPs themselves arrive for their top-secret stewards meeting. Enter, stage left, and on cue, codenames Shallot, October, and Dancer. The British press think Margaret Thatcher is at home, recovering from the flu. The Russians believe that their Gorbachev is resting in his country Dhaka. And America only knows that President George Bush is away quail shooting. In reality, though, they're all here, on the bridge of the HMS Invincible, before all and sundry. Gardner revels in the moment, allowing each leader to thank Bond for his due diligence to their safety. Thatcher even reminisces over Bond having saved her life in the previous outing, against the evil of Scorpius. The less said about that here, the better. But the scene is interesting for how irritated Rear Admiral Walmsley becomes. As captain of the Invincible, he wants to be the premier attendant, but instead watches as Bond steals the show. The Prime Minister and American President reminisce with him. Lust gets the better of James Bond when he sleeps with Nicky Ratnikoff, so much for not wanting women on board, and it's about this time that Petty Officer Blackstone, previously blackmailed by two Bast operatives, sabotages the turbine filters and causes an explosion, the very one Bast was waiting for. Dan Woodward then reveals himself as Abu Hamarik and momentarily seizes Joe Israel at gunpoint. He instructs Bond to lead him to Sarah Dealey, but Nicky stealthily shoots him instead, ending the would-be hijack. Nicky dies in the melee of return fire. She was a ridiculous character, in fairness. Supposedly Gorbachev's aide, but spent most of her time on page chasing and fawning over James Bond. Bound by duty, Bond summarizes events for the VIPs, but Thatcher frostily demands to push ahead with the secret four-day meeting, where, conceivably, the thawing of relations will conclude and the good of the world would be ironed out. She doesn't seem to care that there's a developing terrorist situation going on around her, below deck. I guess Bond's not the only one bound by altruistic duty. One is encouraged, though, to question the author's political game here. As the denouement stretches out, Bond locks up the wounded Hamarik and neutralizes the immediate threat. He leaves the ship for a meeting at the U.S. naval base Rota after receiving a cipher with authentic signal. There, he is shocked to see Beatrice waiting for him. Over a well-needed breakfast, Bond listens as Beatrice explains how she and Franco reverse-engineered the bomb to create a smoke screen for escape before the explosion. The use of a different body, sadly a robbed corpse, allowed for the necessary remains to be found. Apologies to the family. All is fair in love and spycraft, it would seem. Bond learns that it was M's decision to allow Barrage to keep playing, despite having intelligence enough to warrant more action. He was hoping to convince the PM to abort the meeting, 
but she wouldn't listen. Again, the mind boggles at Gardner's depiction of Thatcher here. Iron Lady, indeed. Well, hubris being hubris, those objections prove their worth. Bond learns, as he finishes his hurried breakfast, that Bast's plan, codenamed Bat's Blood, has just commenced with the formal abduction of Thatcher, Gorbachev, and Bush. Now, that $600 billion is a real demand. Doesn't look good for Bond as security chief, does it? He better get back to the boat. But he doesn't make it far back, because when he returns, Clover Pennington reveals herself as the cat of Bast. She tells Bond of another plan, codenamed Sleeping Beauty, whereby the whole crew, including the VIPs, have been skillfully drugged through their foods since coming aboard and are now fast asleep. They're perfectly safe, if unconscious, and will remain so for a few days. Plenty of time to get the booty and away. Feasting only on his work, Bond ate very little the previous day and was feeling only a druthy mouth. His hungry man breakfast on the rota base an hour ago wouldn't have been prepared with devious hands, so he's not feeling much of the drug's effects. Convenient, that. For some reason, Clover sends Donald Speaker down to the brig to give Bond a coffee and a tray of food. Predictably, Speaker is also in on the game, but Bond dispatches him easily and escapes the cell. He makes his way to the bridge, kills one of the wrens, and hightails it to the deck where the Harrier jet sits waiting. Bond hops in and is away, but unbeknownst to him, his timing couldn't have been more exact, for Felipe Pantano also hopped in his Harrier jet, the one previously stolen in the novel, and had advanced on the Invincible almost the same moment, dropping 30mm shells from above as Bond took off. What started as an escape and a regroup has turned into a pursuit. This time, it was Bond's sidewinder, though, that struck gold, hitting Pantano's harrier and breaking it into a dozen pieces. But Bond's plane is wounded. He nearly makes it back to shore, but is forced to scuttle the plane and is picked up by Rota crew in the ocean within minutes. Back at the base with Beatrice, they form a SWAT team of marines and get geared up for retaking the Invincible from Bast. Using inflatables and Bond's intimate knowledge of the vessel, they infiltrate the Invincible, then slash and burn their way violently through the wrens who hold the deck and the briefing room. Clover Pennington meets her end by Sarah Dealey's reckless, friendly fire, and the dust soon settles. Bond confirms the safety of the hostages, sleeping soundly on camp beds. Bat's blood has been drained of all its vitality. In his hotel room on Gibraltar, Bassam Baraj thinks he's won. The representative powers have returned to him a false message of agreement. Humming my way, Baraj calls for breakfast and then dresses, his beretta in its holster. Leaving the hotel, he spots Bond and immediately rushes for the World War II tunnels inside the rock itself. Hoping to lure 007 to his death through the maze of pathways, the drama ends when they reach a training set built deep within the rock. Like a movie, the fake street and its shop fronts serve as simulation for special effects and street fighting. Bond and Barrage exchange shots, but just when Barrage appears to have the upper hand, Beatrice shoots him dead from behind. The count is now two for how many times she saved Bond's life in this book. And the lovers pick up from where they left off, and Bond muses over the death toll of Lancy 89 while entertaining the idea of more happy Christmases with this blossoming romance. 
All right, Scott, another Fabu summary. Let's uh, Fabu. get into Fabu, Fabu indeed. Mm-hmm. Let's get the break. Let's get the breakdown for. Let's let's uh, handle our angle. Angle, of course, is our acronym for our rating of the Bond novels uh, that it we began sure with is. the, the uh, Ian Fleming books, and now we're brought to dutiful diligence when it comes to mm-hmm. the John Gardner novels and scoring each of them. So, a- angle is an acronym. Uh, a is for allies and adversaries. N is for narrative. G is for girl, as in the Bond girl or Bond women. Uh, mm-hmm. L is for locations, and E is for equipment. And we rate sure each is. of those yeah. out of five. Yep, and that gives us a total of 25 out of which we rate or score the books. Correct. All right, Josh. Well, why don't you kick off, buddy? Uh, share your ideas, your thoughts about the allies and adversaries. There is a shit ton of them here in this book, so <laughs> let's get yep. into it. Of the some of the main allies in this story, we could probably put into the girls category um, in mm-hmm, this sense mm-hmm. because that's, we have to do that with every Bond novel. Um, so we have M, who, in interest, interestingly enough, in this story, we learn that he's a grandfather, uh, and a right, doting yeah. grandfather at that, and also, which even confirms for me that he's more of a surrogate, distant father figure for Bond more than ever. Yeah. Even in a sense where Bond thinks he's playing with him in some weird way or just likes having fun with Bond and whatnot. M has a family, I get, you know, has a family. He would have to have to have to have grandchildren. So he just seems kind of like, it's almost like his own way of being critical of the way that Bond runs things. But Bond is kind of like his, I, I don't know if he lives vicariously through Bond or he just likes having fun with him and lets Bond have his, his misadventures, but criticizes his lifestyle there's, there's there's just a fun kind of aspect between the Bond and M relationship in the Gardner books that you don't really see much in the Fleming novels. There's mm-hmm. there's more of a professional distance in the Fleming novels, I find, when it comes to Bond and uh, and M. Where in this one, it, you could argue that Gardner is building upon that relationship and expanding it out of further a bit more. But you at the same have. time, it does feel a little different sometimes. And... Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. You pulled that away. I like I like your observations about him as a grandfather, though. It is a side of M that we hadn't seen before. And equally, I thought it was interesting that uh, Gardner Gardner mentions that his uh, his butler, his housekeeper, um, has who gets changed. replaced. Who gets replaced? Yeah, which of course is central to the Fleming sweep. There's a continuation there. Um, well, I've got I've got that bit here in the book, Josh. Um, M's beautiful country house called nostalgically quarter deck it says here quarter that deck, yes. uh, seconds later the stout door was unbolted from inside and opened to reveal m's servant davison who had replaced the faithful the faithful ex-chief petty officer hammond and chief petty officer hammond was m's servant uh, butler take you know however you want to understand that term and he existed in the fleming stories so what we've got here is definitely a world where the two are meant to line up. It's not Gardner's he does bond appear on screen. Fleming's bond. Yeah, yeah. He, he does appear on screen in Majesties, doesn't he? Because doesn't he lead? Oh, he does. Yeah, he does. Bond, because remember, Bond says it's the ad, is the admiral in right, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. was the first time, like in the Bond films, that we kind of taken it took a more intimate look at M. I guess you could say. Um, Interesting. Happens, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, so that's that, M carried for, yeah. and But, you know, M is interesting in this book as well because he does withhold information from Bond and he allows the 
uh, adversary. He allows Baraj to continue to operate, even though he has enough intel on him to make act on or to act upon. But he keeps Bond in the dark. He keeps readers in the dark. And it's not until later in the story that we get some of the info dumps that help us. Uh, quite notably, I think, one of the info dumps he gets while at quarterdeck, Bond I speak of, isn't even revealed to readers. We don't know what Bond knows. And usually we are told in a, in a big scene at the start of the book, here's the bad guy and here's what he's all about. But we only get snippets here. M and Gardner are both quite careful with how they share information in this story. Did you have, did you notice that difference? Well, I, I felt that, yeah, like M was definitely playing 4D chess in this, in this book. Like, Mm-hmm. And he was running mm-hmm. circles around the villains, even though that's why I had the feeling even when I think that that to me in a way uh, made the villains, the adversaries in this particular scoring allies and adversaries, it made the adversaries a little less threatening to me because I knew that mm-hmm. M was way more, was much more intelligent and experienced in this kind of game. As I said, like we have M versus Barrage here in, in in a way, it's not Barrage versus Bond. Bond is just the guy in the middle who's like, you know, re- responding to everything that's going on, all these twists, like us, the reader. So we're on the same kind of knowledge level as Bond himself in the story, which is kind of interesting in a Hitchcock way. We kind of feel like, you know, Roger Thornhill in this situation being pushed aside. Aside if, if Roger Thornhill was, like, you know, learning to become a Top Gun and being James Bond at the same time. <laughs> uh, but yeah. There's definitely that feeling of like the information is being controlled and the audience and the protagonist are on the same level. So I did like that. And M being kind of, uh, you know, little fingering in the story just felt like, you know, it, it was, that was definitely cool and different from before because it's usually just sort of like a plot point in the other, in the other Gardner books so far. Um, but the thing is, is that if M is playing 3D or 4D chess or what have you, I don't know what the heck Barrage is playing because he's playing checkers, man. Like, I just found that (laughs) he was way too naive and way too arrogant and he had no idea what he was up against. Even though you believe that they keep getting the upper hand or they got something planned, everything that they do gets fizzled out completely um, Mm -hmm. by... So M is, M is ultimately there, but at the same time, he let the, the kidnapping of three heads of state occur as well. But I think that has more to do with the writing flaw as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, M, M, M in character, because he did exactly what he was supposed to do in terms of his job. So props to M oh, yeah. in this story. Yeah, Because yeah. he also brought uh, that information to Thatcher and she wanted no part of it. Like she didn't seem to care. She didn't yeah. want to stop things, even though she, she was presented with the facts. It's all Thatcher's fault. All, it's all Thatcher's fault. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure many will agree with that. I don't know, but in terms that, of this oh, book, yeah. but they'll mm-hmm. say it's all Thatcher's fault. I'm sure it's uh, you living in mm-hmm. Scotland and being in Glasgow, you know how much Thatcher is loved, you know, in, in, in uh, or not. Yeah. yeah. Or, or not. Yeah. Um, there are many people who would gladly dance on her grave. Um, but yeah, enough of that. Let's not go down that, uh, that rabbit. Yeah. Horn. No, that is a rabbit hole. We don't want to go into yeah. Can I just ask, before we move away from him, can I just ask you, buddy, how do you feel Gardner characterizes Tanner in these books? We've seen him now quite a bit. He's always there. And he seems in the last two novels, Scorpius and this one particularly, to always be there, giving information, sharing thoughts, working with M. M kind of gets gruff with him on occasion and corrects him on, you know, the spelling or the pronunciation of things or whatever. But how do you find Gardner's presentation of Tanner in the books? It reminds me of the Tanner presentation we've got since Goldeneye in the films, actually. Mm. Because if you remember, if you remember Michael Kitchen in um, 
Michael Kitchen in GoldenEye, you know, mm-hmm. the evil queen of numbers and M is in the background, right? And then mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. Ro- uh, Rory Kinnear's Tanner, who I visualize when I read the Gardner novels, actually, because I think he fits well into that Yes, role, I, I think know? so too. But, you know, yeah. since since um, Kingsley Amos's Colonel's son, I don't think yes. Tanner has ever been a full character. Like, I really liked the way Tanner was like Bond's friend. That felt more like continuing the Fleming books. Whereas yeah. the Tanner in the Gardner stories is very much just like, he is he's almost robotic there's not a lot of personality there so while i agree rory kinnear fits more along the lines visually of what i'm thinking with tanner rory kinnear still has you know dimension and this tanner i'm still waiting to understand the kind of game he's playing because he was very involved last book with scorpius and he's involved here but he just kind of goes through the motions we don't get to see an emotional landscape with him and we don't get to see a like a friend there working with bond or like we never get to see him on kind of loosen his tie knot and just sort of exhale and we get a character moment with tanner there's nothing like that it's just tanner's an extension of m doing m stuff friendly do you know what i mean i find that there's a distance that gardner's keeping us from this character there is a distance. I feel too that Gardner seems to know a lot about how the military and those and those particular agencies work and how they function. So it's understandable that M in the in the late eighties and toward the end of the Cold War is not going to have just Money Penny as his right hand. You know, he's going to have someone like Tanner, who's kind of like a liaison for him to work with Bond mm-hmm. in the field when he doesn't have to face him in person. So there is a kind of a distancing of that relationship, and Tanner is sort of in the middle. Uh, it's plant bottom planted in the middle as a liaison and but he's just there to basically confirm what m says or doesn't say you know yeah. he, he he just feels like like he's like an automaton where he's just doing m's orders mi6 orders he's like the, the mouthpiece i i suppose i, I do feel yeah. it's a bit lacking though anyway let's let's keep going fire on so other characters we have i mean there's so many of them that fill their that fill their spot i want to talk about the wrens on a writing level so i'm not going to focus on like I mean, adversaries we do have from the Wrens. We have Dealey, the crazy psycho Wren um, that was recruited by the cat slash Clover. And then we have, you know, Abu Hamarak, the snake, one of the three leaders of Bast. Um, He kind of has like an in and out kind of role, sort of like a chameleon character, um, the jackal type character who does the bidding of Barrage. And he ends up, you know, being dispatched in a non-ceremonial kind of way. But mm-hmm. it feels mm-hmm. like the whole setup and plan to get him on board. And then it's just like, oh, he just gets shot. And then he takes yeah. that. Yeah. And then that's it, really. I felt that he never really, despite those sequences where they arranged his desperate dance, um, <laughs> he almost like yeah. basically we're back into Thunderball territory again with desperate oh, yeah. dan being being replaced a la thunderball like angelo and, D- and duval and, and the then stolen have, plane and the and health the stolen clinic plane. sort of thing yeah yeah there's that but desperate dan gets replaced um by abu hamarak and that and then but he doesn't have much presence in the story besides that he doesn't really do much the only thing he does is like he wants yeah. to get Dealey, who's already been captured off this off the ship because he knows that blackie is going to you know do his thing with the filter now we have Blackie, Blackie Blackerson, or whatever his name was. I think it was just all black Blackwood, his yeah. name. Bla- yeah, Blackie Blackerson, Blackwood, whatever his name is. Uh, the petty officer who gets who gets um, uh, blackmailed 
they that was interesting black. angle to play More to black. play on, and it's and it's a seed that's well planted in the narrative uh, and, and 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 comes to fruition. But you never really get a sense, and we, and we know that he's married, and he doesn't want this to get to. He doesn't want to ruin his marriage because of, of his womanizing and mm-hmm. other deviancies that he seems to have. But at the same time, like there's still no emotional connection to his situation. We don't feel sympathy for him, you know, whatsoever. He's just a guy that's caught up in the, in the terrorist actions of Bast, essentially. So I mean, he plays his part in the narrative, like all the characters do. Just like Morgan, the American intelligence agency. A uh, guy who was strength, who was garroted, or what, what have you, in in the in the wren's head of the ship, and, yeah. and which creates uh-huh. like a whodunit situation. So all these characters, and at, whether they're villains or good guys, they they function in the narrative uh, just to you know to move it along and whatnot. And that's something very similar uh, that we've seen in other Gardner novels. We like like Clancy. Uh, Gardner likes to populate his narrative with all these people working the way that they should in their in their respective agencies to give a sense of realism to the storytelling, and that's what these characters do. They're not much. They're not very fleshed out very much. They're only briefly mentioned. They don't really have much presence on page whatsoever. But it still works, and it helps with his world building. So. You know, it works for me in that respect. So okay. as a whole, I think this is something that he's good at. He's good at filling in the story. I just wish he had a little more dimension. So for the allies and adversaries, if I were to, you know, my rating, I feel three out of five is the best I can I, I can give it here because we're just we don't we just don't have the oomph of these characters that we should in terms of how they are in in, in terms of what we should get in a story. And maybe I'm expecting too much in terms of a of an airport read, you know, in in this case, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I like rich storytelling, and that if this if a story if a novel doesn't have that for me, that I'm not going to give it a high mark in terms of a category like this. So, adversaries and allies, we got a good mix of like characters are good and bad, but none of them really make an, a big impression on me. And I'll save the women for the for the girls section anyway. So. Um, okay. I'm three out of five okay. when it comes to allies and adversaries. What about All you? right. Um, well, I'm kind of close with you. I agree with what you were saying that, you know, they, they service the story and whatnot. But I do find that this is classic Gardner overfilling, overfilling the mm. pot with characters. And I would maybe just disagree a wee bit with what you said regarding um, how, you know, they're not there for very long or they're only there to do a little something. Bond spends the majority of his time on the invincible right it's certainly the second half of the story he does and during that time we are introduced to characters that we are meant to think could be suspect of something so after he leaves beatrice or beatrice if you prefer and we meet (laughs) rear admiral walmsley and then we get even like you know the the surgeon commander grant and then the comrade attache uh, ratnikov and ivan and yevgeny and gennady and then there's the british entourage of ted brinkley and the special branch guy and then you've got uh what's his name you mentioned him edgar morgan the guy who gets garroted with joe and stan and bruce and uh and and then you've got basam barrage and felipe pantano the pilot abu hamarik and of course clover pennington is the cat sarah dealey donald speaker dan woodward Donald speaker and harry harry and bill yeah harry and bill the guys who blackmail blackie you know i feel like there are way too many characters Way too many characters in this story for me, man. Like we're constantly oh, meeting and questioning new new additions. I think this is the worst 
Gardner story so far for adding extra characters. And although you would expect some, like you would expect these big political heads, these figures of state, to have an entourage. I don't know that each of them has to be introduced as a potential threat that the plot needs to kind of figure out, the character needs to investigate. Like, it's just all a bit too much. Like, I'm I'm desperate to get off the bridge in that scene because I just want to get on with the story, but we've got to listen to the introductions of all these people and get a little description from Gardner and, oh, he had a shifty yeah. look and, oh, she has eyes for Bond. And, like, man, I, I just found that... I just find it too full. This is too full of characters for me, but I... I come back to what you said a while ago with M. I like what he's doing with M here. We get a different side to him. He is playing 4D chess. The the adversaries are really lame though, Josh, because mm. because we don't get to know them. Like No. And I mean Bond says it, right? He says it to M. He said it sounds like a weak man's or a, a poor man's specter. And yeah. M's like, well, that, that's what we thought at first until and so M tries to make it big for the reader. But the truth is, none of these guys or girls are are engaging or interesting like they disappear quickly they're dispatched without any sort of ceremony there's no interesting death to them oh, it's not like they're being the chased out at the, the end man they were taken out by seal oh, no, yeah. six you know like no, they were just like taken horrible. out completely like they didn't even need yeah. to like i just felt like they could have just like gassed them or something like like they were just like non-threatening ruthless like, yeah yeah but there was there's like you know strangulation of women and like breaking their necks and stuff it, it's pretty grim pretty grim and, and the very the way fact that, that like the wrens this is, these are the wrens these are this is the ladies of bletchley park of like the the world war ii home front of the blitz in in, in, in england these are the wrens like these are early strong feminist figures you know in in in, in north in world history you know like particularly mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. modern world history the wrens are well are known and for some reason gardeners like let's just make them all evil and then like I don't know what he was trying. Was this satire? Yeah, what, what is was he this, on about? Like I don't know. I, I I don't know. We'll get into that into the writing more. But yeah, like yeah. I just had. Well, that. anyway, yeah. I, I went I went two and a half with the adversaries. Parts of them I wanted to fail desperately because I thought like Nikki Ratnikov was ridiculous. There was no need for her to be in the story at all. I didn't think like Bond has already slept with one potentially two girls. You know, if he had continued. Um, continued on with um, Pennington, you know, if he had given her what she wanted as a, as an edge on him, a sexual edge on him. But yeah, I just didn't think she needed to be in there. Like another character, if, if Gardner will let a random nameless Marine jump in and save Bond from Sarah Dealey, then surely somebody else can take care of uh, Hamarik as he's walking, you know, as he's kind of holding Joe uh, Israel by the neck, you know, somebody else can dispatch a him and we don't need a character to feel sorry for. Oh, that sexy Russian girl's dead. Well, what's the point of having her in there in the first place? Bond, what, just to show that he's lustful? Like, I I, I just thought her place in the story was dumb. It, it kind of felt more like what the earlier films would have done by using like, oh, a hot girl when Gogol is sitting on the phone or something. Do you know what I mean? It just kind Rub- of felt uh, dumb Rubovich. to me. Yeah, ruble of it. Yeah, that's it. So, which is basically like money penny, uh, but but translated <laughs> yeah. to Russian essentially, right? But anyways, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. So yeah, I went two and a half. I mean, it is what it is. It's just yeah, too many I was characters in here it. for Maybe me. Maybe I was a little more. I was I was a little ge- little generous. I don't know, but uh, 
I felt that the the characters in their story made it realistic, and I, I know that, and I'm, I'm putting it on the basis that he wanted to install a whodunit in the middle of this story uh, to create more suspense and tension. So I guess you needed to have that cast of characters to like, oh, who's a suspect? Who's a suspect? But what he mm-hmm, gave us mm-hmm. was very thin in terms of who we could guess who the who killed Morgan in the head. Like there was very few suspects, and it just seemed like it was going into an obvious direction, but. Um, okay, well, let's yeah. move on to the narrative. See what you made of the story itself, buddy. Well, as I said, I like the idea of Emma as a doting grandfather, and uh, that was an interesting twist of the characters. But, like, <sighs> in terms of writing and storytelling, I found that this book had the best flow of all the Gardner novels. I just found mm-hmm. that it went from set piece to set piece to set piece to set piece. Besides, cool. like you know, how many? Despite like how many characters you have in the novel, that you said there was a bit too many. There were too many characters in this mm-hmm. novel. Mm-hmm. I still felt that there wasn't a wasted section of. A, a, there was no wasted chapters in this. Every chapter by the end of the book feels like it makes sense to tell the story that Gardner was telling, uh, whether or not you know it's a great story. But uh, there was like weird additions though too. Like you have speaker. Like yes, we need an interrogator, <laughs> mm-hmm. but then it feels Gardner changed his mind and decided to make the character a wild card halfway through. And, and maybe he felt that the Wrens still needed help in ransoming the three world leaders. That it wasn't believable enough that they actually. Since now that's when I go into believability. I mean. I found it completely preposterous that these three heads of state <laughs> would meet on a battleship. Like I just don't understand what why they didn't even need to be there for those security briefings and whatnot. I just I just felt like that was like the neutral territory that they were going to meet on. I don't know. Yeah. I just yeah. felt like if you look at the famous meetings or whatever, like Yalta or something like that, you know, they would it's on like on a certain island where they can secure and control everything. It wouldn't be on something as vulnerable as like a ship or something like that for all those three lead world leaders to meet, you know? They would have found other places for it. And the very fact how easily like this it's the cat twist really. You know, Bond leaves the invincible and meets Beatrice. So we get that you know, that big twist we're going, oh, Beatrice is still alive. Oh my God, of course. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Pennington obviously allowed Delia on the security detail because she deliberately put her there and install installed all the wrens. So then by the time Bond gets back to the ship and it's already been taken over, you know, and it's no surprise at all at that point where Pennington has him in her clutches. Yeah. yeah. And it just felt like Bond had for the ship to be taken, Bond had to leave to the air go to that airbase, meet get the reveal that Beatrice, Beatrice, what have you, is still alive. And then we know that everything's happening. And then, of course, it's all said and done, right? And Gardner explains, oh, well, they drugged all the food and stuff like that because they put the wrens in as, you know, well, they're not really officers per se. I think he was commenting a little bit maybe on the sexism of, even though the wrens are well-valued in British society and in history, he felt like, you know, they still relegated them to like doing mess officer Mm -hmm, duties and mm -hmm, stuff like that. And that's how they were able, that's him kind of winking. So that's him being a bit feminist. But then he's almost all of a sudden like, he makes the wrens really, Week and he does he put he put speaker on there just so that maybe people felt that they he needed like someone male for him to fight. I mean, you get yeah, the Patano sh- showdown. I, I don't know. Like he shows us all the moving parts. Uh, we get the Blackie Blackstone, the the petty engineer, petty officer engineer blackmail plot, the Patano Harrier Hair Harrier steel plot, the Desperate Dan storyline. The throw-ins like throw-ins like speaker, and it makes sense to an extent, but it still feels like cut and paste storytelling to me. Um, 
it just doesn't feel like Bond. It feels like a techno thriller on the same page of Tom Clancy. There's a tension mm-hmm. that keeps you reading. It does hook you, but it clashes realism with fantasy. It toes that line. It really blurs that line, to be fair. And then it either feels like parody or just simply not Bond. Uh, Bast, as you said, is definitely like Kirkland Spectre. Uh, <laughs> it just seems foolhardy. Yeah. We're in the known world. Is Barrage going to hide after ransoming these leaders, let alone killing them? He's going to hide out in the British nobility. That's his plan. That's what he was insinuating. Like he's yeah. so overconfident and so wrongly, you know, so confidently wrong that it just seems like idiotic. I just couldn't take it seriously. And then again, you have the lack of emotion in Gardner's writing. It just feels forced. And there's moments when he's literally reading from a technical manual, explaining this to the reader. Like, just, there's literally like a scene going like, this actually means this. I'm like, was that Bond's mindset? Was that Bond speaking to the reader, like in his own mind frame? Or is that just Gardner telling the reader what is? Like, if you read a Tom Clancy novel, he manages to write all this technical stuff in, in there to explain it to you. But he does it in a way that just works for the storytelling that he's doing. Gardner just feels like he's just putting in, like, well, this means this and this means that. But it's like he wants to explain... He, he doesn't have that way that Fleming had of being able to incorporate this into the writing. It just feels like he's writing too, he's writing a, he's writing this, it feels like you're reading like the plot outline and then he's just explaining things along to the reader sometimes. And yeah, and the very fact you get that triumvirate of Bush Sr., Gorbachev and Thatcher, like as Bond <laughs> interacting with these characters, it just borders on satire. And that took me out completely of the narrative. And this kind of goes into the allies and adversaries. Like, we have villains that seem to be well-organized, despite their small numbers, even though they fail. Gardner teases them as terrorists, but he doesn't jump into any volatile waters. Like, he doesn't even point to Barrage and them being about Islamic fundamentalists whatsoever. He just makes them almost secular in their terrorism. You know what I mean? Like, nationalistic Mm -hmm. at best. And he's not even Arab himself. That's a name, like, he takes on his Arabic name much la- later on in his life because he goes from being this Bavitsky arms dealer guy to this guy. And he wants to make the world a better place, but we don't explore his ideology. And I'll get on to the ideology when I talk about Pennington in the girls section. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, this was a straightforward story. The technical details are there to make things seem realistic, but there was just so much ridiculous stuff in this story. And the very fact that, like, just setting up set pieces after set pieces. And the fact that the ship gets taken over because Bond goes and get, just, to, just to get that reveal. I just, uh, I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I was struggling between a two and a half and a three. But the more and more I think about it, I'm, I'm at two and a half just to pass with the narrative. Okay. That's my rant. That's really, <laughs> see... Well, it was a rant because you started by saying that you think this is the tightest of all the Gardner narratives. It, it is in it terms of the narrative. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like it was efficient in a narrative storytelling. There's just so much preposterous elements to this in, in there that I mm-hmm. just like. It was frustrating because he has a really tight story here, and he. But then I remember I sent you a message saying I'm halfway. Th- I'm near. I'm a hundred pages in now, and it's still not. And it's not. And the story. And the story hasn't you know pissed me off yet. And well. Mm-hmm. As soon as I got that, as soon as the reveal that it was going to be those three world leaders on the on the ship, and I'm like, yeah, oh boy. Yeah. And then things just seem to seem to like domino effect after that in terms of the ridiculousness of the storytelling. Anyway, 
Yeah. And what did you make of the ending, Josh? Like, I'll share my thoughts in a minute, but what did you make of the ending in, in the rocks of Gibraltar itself? That sort of weird movie, see the movie set training scene, you know, for the soldiers and street fighting and stuff like, is that, was that a suitable stage for the end of this book? The end I think of it, Baraz? Yes, I, I think it was uh, it, on paper. <laughs> I know that's a funny term, but you know what I mean? Like, I felt like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Gibraltar tunnels, part of world history. Eisenhower had his bases in there when he was doing Operation Torch. So that was very significant during the Second World War. It's a nostalgic place to do something like this, particularly like in the modern day context, like old versus new. I thought that was an interesting twist that Gardner put in there. He could have made it suspenseful, but I were going into the writing of the locales, but I found that it's just... It, his depiction of the tunnels are, you know, are murky at best. And it, and it mm-hmm. does seem derivative because I was reminded of the man with the golden gun, uh, the film mm-hmm. Scaramanga's mm-hmm. Funhouse a little, a little bit as well. Um, yeah, the Hogan's too. heroes kind of <laughs> Hogan's, Alley. Hogan's hero, Hogan's Alley, not Hogan's heroes, Hogan's out. I'm picturing <laughs> Colonel Clink now in control now. And it's a lot funnier and enjoyable. <laughs> it's more uh, enjoyable. Yeah. 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 Um, All right. Well, yeah. I, I went for the narrative of this story. I went three and a half. So you were at two and a half and I understand why I went three and a half, not because I liked it a whole heck of a lot more than you, but because I was just happy to be somewhere different, to be doing something different. This was interesting. I I I think it took, it took a bit of, um, was it no deals? Mr. Bond. Was that the one where, uh, yeah, that's the one that begins with like Bond doing the rescue mission. Right. And then goes to Ireland and stuff like that. Like I liked the fact that we were doing something different and it kind of felt yes. like a continuation of bond as a naval officer and here of course he's upgraded to captain we got some interesting things going on there i like the idea of a summit but i'm with you a hundred percent things go to crazy town once you mention that it's gorbachev and bush and and then things go to like austin powers crazy town when he asks for 600 billion dollars for three politicians like does he understand how valuable politicians are in the world because i did like that note that no one's going to do that yeah i did like how gardner put in that thing going where bond says well that's a stupid idea they're just replace the world leaders that's how it works right like Mm -hmm. it's not the the world leaders are just the the leaders are just the figureheads for those movements for that they'll just replace them with you you cut out it's like the hydra you cut off one head and another will replace it so Uh, and that that feeds into your comment about the naivety of barrage as a villain like he thinks that people care about these politicians it's like Hitler during Stalingrad. It's like Hitler is always about the symbolic victories and not the important victories. Like Hitler could have easily had taken on Russia or Moscow with his army going east, but instead he focuses on Stalingrad because it's named after Sta- after after his his nemesis for one thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he decides, you know, to just just devote all of the eastern army's attention on Stalingrad and that was a big f up for him during the war which which was basically almost the beginning of, of the downfall of his regime because everything went to crock after the eastern army fell apart so mm-hmm. it just goes to show that this guy barrage is going for a symbolic victory or symbolic ends he's not focusing on what really matters you, yeah, you know what i mean yeah. that's why i think the plan with the wrens is very much like that oh we take the wrens and we, as a propaganda way, we show that we're in control of like all these British traditions and 
what have you, and we're able mm-hmm. to infiltrate that and take over it that's and right. so that we're yeah. everywhere. But that's the way that he thinks, right? He thinks he's putting his tentacles in there, but all he's doing is he's grasping at the surface and he's not yeah. getting into the deep state, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. when I use those mm-hmm. kind of terms. But no. But all the parts are there to work for a, a much better narrative than this. But the characters of the three villains, they're just not really fleshed out the way they should be. And yeah, I get it that he's trying to do something different with it and being withholding and all of that stuff. But it, it just amounts to very thinly ske- very thinly sketched villains. And But, you know, having said that, though, like it is a linear plot. We're told at the start what's going to happen and we're told who at least big picture who is trying to mess this up. So even Bond and the allies know the threat will likely be made real. They're just kind of waiting to see, as we are, how the dominoes fall, you know? Like the setup with the naval training, I thought telegraphed fairly clearly what was going to happen at the end when he had to take the plane. But the serendipity of him getting into that Harrier jet the same time that Felipe does like to do his attack, that's just that's just bonkers, right? It, it's really... It, 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 Silly. It, it is. It's so it's so serendipitous. I would have felt mm-hmm. like Bond maybe like getting off the plane and then looking for a Patano and then finding him to like going towards the coast where I guess that was the plan that Patano would just rain hell on some nearby population. Then that if he had Bond had gone searching for him and found him, that would have been a bit more believable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I agree with that. But you know. <sighs> When we do hear about the villain too, I felt like it was tedious, tedious. Like that chapter 10 was was an absolute slog because we had to listen to or read like all the bits about the character, which usually we would be told at the beginning so that the action can take over. We have to, we get it all there. Gardner tells us all about Mesovitsky and how he grew up and how petty crime turned to more serious crime, which turned to terrorism, which turned to, but, but you know, at the same time, like, I like the fact that he's just out for himself. I thought that was kind of refreshing, you know? Like, yes, fine, it's a poor man specter or whatever, but it's, like, as much as we say Gardner wasn't interested in developing Bast beyond the the story's need for an organizational villain or whatever, I did think it was neat that he himself was planning on leaving once he got his money and to hell with anybody else who works with him, like he was going to cut off the other two themselves himself. Yeah. And he, he just wanted the money. But I'm thinking to myself, why do you need $200 billion to disappear? Like you got a plastic surgeon on the end of the phone because he talks about the Swiss clinic he's about to go to at the end. Yeah. And why, why are you fighting for that much money? Like maybe they would give you money if you weren't so ridiculous about it. And then you could just piss off and have the life you wanted. You know, you could extort for less than what you're aiming for. You don't need $200 billion to go make a life for yourself somewhere. $200 I, I found billion. That, dollars. Yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of silly. But th- th- then there's the war game itself. Like I felt that Land Sea 89 was a bit nebulous and it was the backdrop of this entire narrative. But... We never really understood stroke for stroke what the rest of the ship or the, the, the three nuclear submarines that are hanging around. Like, we don't know what the hell they're doing. We're told that, that and why do they need Walsh three and, heads of state there? Like, yeah. I don't understand why they need three well, heads no, of state to supervise it, but... They don't. They're not there to supervise it. The stewards meeting is taking place uh, behind the curtain of this war game. And yeah, it's something... Okay. They're not there to supervise it. They're just there to take advantage of the, the political smokescreen, I think, you know? Well, that kind of but answers I, your question. Then it's an ephemeral. It's like a, it's ephemeral. The whole yeah, opera, yeah, the whole does, yeah. the whole the whole I know, operation. I know. It doesn't matter. Like they could have like the, 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 they could like command their ships to just keep going into a circle. 
you know, keep going, running, you know, just. But it does matter though, because that's what Walsley says. He says it, you know, and and Gardner tells us it's big. M tells us it's big. This is something that's meant to be, you know, uh, 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 a collaborative expression of these nations coming together and the military might that could now defend the world instead of fight against itself, you know, we're meant to see it as like a gesture of that. Yeah, Walmsley was, I think, a character that could have been more interesting if there was more pages put to him and whatnot. I found that I, I liked him when he was on page. I like that he was arrogant, but he also spoke truly to Bond about situations and he was understanding of what Bond is like, but he still had a personality where he was an ambitious careerist in his own way. And he had a bit of that British old arrogance to him as well. I enjoyed his character when, when he was on page. Um, and that's some well, stuff that, that Gardner gets right in his writing is how these people work in the greater scheme of things. Yeah. Um, and he does he does have that cool moment with Bond too, where Bond gets the one up for knowing Bush and for knowing Thatcher, and he's kind of irritated by that. I kind of like the way that you got some character writing in there. But as far as the narrative goes, all said, you all said me. Uh, I'm also at a two and a half. I, I have more goodwill for it, but it's only because I wanted to see the difference that he was experimenting with convert to something better, and I, I just didn't. It just didn't convert to something better. So it's a passable book. The narrative is swift moving. The narrative is, as you say, uh, pretty skilled and efficient with its set pieces, moving them from one to the other. But I don't ultimately think that this is one of the better Gardner narratives, no. So I'm I'm just passing it as well. Yeah, I, I feel you on that 100%. And I'm going to make a point to say right now, too. Gardner needs to stop with the globe with the Blofeld and Spectre cloning. Like that's all he does is he creates new Spectres. Because if you think mm-hmm. of the way that kind of the blandness that Blofeld was portrayed with in the Fleming novels, sorry, but it's true. Um, I feel so mm-hmm. anyway. A lot of the characters like Barrage and some other, who was the guy from the Spectre Reborn, I forget his name now, the guy who was blew up in his hospital bed, like the guy in Breaking <laughs> oh, yeah. Bad. Tamil Rahani, yeah. Yeah, it's Rahani. All of these guys are just like second-rate Blofelds, who was already kind of yeah. like on the on their low tier of Bond villains in the Fleming novels anyway. I know Blofeld is a much bigger villain on screen than he is, you know, in, in the books and whatnot, but... Well, he's very good in Thunderball because he has that menacing yes. presence from the background. But once we meet him, you're right. Yeah, he just becomes he becomes another villain. But I think you're also right to say that he does pale a bit when you put him up to the Dr. No or to the Goldfingers of the original text. Yeah. But I think yeah. Gardner's feeling the pressure to just keep that going because there's a lot of Bond fans that want that. Yeah. I mean, he wrote License to Kill, the adaptation mm-hmm. of it anyways, mm-hmm. but maybe the License to Kill with his drug dealers was already done with, you know, the drug cartel. So he just really wanted to explore Islamic fundamentalism, maybe, because creating like almost like a specter formed out of terrorists, essentially, is what he did. Well, we had that in the previous story. We had that yes, in the previous but, story as well. But it wasn't the, the Islamic bombing. fundamentalism. It was more about, it's like, it's so weird because he had a chance here to explore that in, in, in a way in his novel. But he doesn't. Instead, he puts that suicide bombing to a, to this cult, non-religious cult that was cr- that was created by the villain in the previous novel. And I'm just curious at some of his like ideas. Are they because maybe he thought about doing this and then he was told by his editor saying maybe you shouldn't go that direction? Um, mm, it's hard to say. Maybe. And we're also in the 80s and you got the satanic panic going on so mention of demonology and like what scorpius was into with darkness and stuff like that all kind of fits the world that he's drawing from you know true that's definitely true but it's so pithy Um, it's so very pithy in this book it is very pithy anyways that's my take on overall like we're 
Gardner's going so far. Like, we don't have any kind of Goldfinger-esque villains or Dr. No-like villains, as you said, um, in, in, in his books yet. They're all Spectre derivatives. The only, that was, the only thing that was kind of different was Icebreaker, because we're dealing with basically Nazis instead of yes. Spectre. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, let's move on to girls or women, I suppose, but G, girls for the angle. Okay. Well, Beatrice. So Beatrice, Beatrice, whatever you want to you want to call it. Beatrice, yeah, sure, whatever. Beatrice. Uh I found her charm superficial and the writing doesn't allow us to love her like like Gardner's telling us. Like he makes mm-hmm. it delusions to Tracy once again. And then it's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, Bond's falling in love with this girl over Christmas." And mm-hmm. I just found like I just couldn't buy that in the writing. I I just felt like it was being forced upon me. She's like, and then we have Pennington, who is another Gardner Bond girl who ends up becoming an and type Bond girl where you think like like Harry or the one before Harry, they're just sort of like there to play that role, and they don't have much mm-hmm. personality besides that. Besides, yeah. and, and they're just being sort of like sexual objects in many ways. Um, it gets yeah, to a well, point that her character, you're right. you're when, right. when you're reading the narrative, where painting kind of becomes. Maybe interesting at first because she's a Wren and that's something that they can play on. And maybe mm-hmm. in terms of like pr- professionalism and whatnot, in terms of like the relation, the dynamic between a male officer and a female officer, that's something that they could have definitely have played upon, like the professionalism and how much Bond respects her as a woman, as an officer, I, sh- I should say, rather than, than just as a, as a woman. That's something that Gardner could have played upon. But instead, she, as the story goes on, she she gradually becomes an annoyance, you know, in, with her lack of professionalism and incompetence. And Bond, I feel like that was deliberate, though. So Bond felt like he dismissed her professionally by the midway of the story, that he kind of didn't see that she was pulling the wool under his over his eyes and that she was, in fact, you know, the cat. But I just felt like something had to happen with her character because after Beatrice died so unceremoniously, um, I'm like, oh, so she actually was a villain or that, that was a really weird moment for me when Beatrice died. I have to say, because they said, they set her up to be a romantic interest, but then, Oh, mm-hmm. she was actually the cat or one of cats minions all along. Okay. Well, that was kind of a waste of time. Then did, did Gardner just like watch the Godfather recently and saw Apollonia blow up in the car, you know, like, but mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just felt like, uh. Uh, yeah. And then, so I knew something wasn't right about that. So I felt there was going to be some, there was going to be some reveal, but, and it happened that Beatrice was still alive, but then how he explained how she faked her death. I don't know. And then we have Pennington or the cat, even when she's confronted as the, even when she's revealed as the villain and she has this chance to defend her ideology and what she believes to make her like a, a three dimensional character, a good villain. She just comes off as a brat and, and and the way that the gardener yeah. and how, writes Bond, how he responds to her, is that's exactly how you're forced to feel about her. You know, like there's no ambiguity in terms of that. So I don't know. And again, I'm mystified how Gardner took the Wrens, this example of early feminism, virtual heroes at the home front, you know, associated with Bletchley and all that. Yeah. And he made them baddies. Them. And yeah. baddies it's that are really ruthlessly curious. taken out by Bond mm-hmm. and special forces. Like, I'm not sure if this it is a fun a indulgence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or was this an anti-feminist statement? I don't know, but it was bizarre and I, it did not provoke the emotions I should have felt. 
No, you're right. And that's that's a, a key point that I, I'm glad you touched on because it saves me from having to say it. But I agree exactly with what you say. It's a weak point of the narrative. It's unexplored. We don't really understand why. Much like we don't understand what his political aim is with the whole Thatcher thing and, and making her so insistent on work and duty. And like, is is he pro-Thatcher? Is he wanting to shove that down our throats in the, in the wake of the Falkland War? Like, what is it he's trying to do here politically? Because he's definitely going after the Wrens for some reason. And he's definitely putting Thatcher on a pedestal, whether it's a pedestal in the stocks with tomatoes ready to throw, or whether it's a pedestal for praise. I mean, I guess you could interpret it either way, but it seems to me like he's he's very pro-Thatcher. It seems like. But he also but, again, he, but, but he also makes her a source of frustration for Bond and the characters mm-hmm. because it's her behavior that takes them into the direction that they're going. So it's and very, even very you, have odd, that, very odd. you have that comment by Walmsley about Thatcher afterwards when they leave when they leave the room to, to Bond. So mm-hmm. uh, it's like is he is he trying to play both sides of the fence here? Maybe, maybe that's it. He's yeah, a fence sitter yeah. in terms of how he's showing his politics on in the paper, trying yeah. to be as ap- apolitical as possible and just focus on the narrative. I don't know, but I feel like he was towing a thin line. He was you know he was walking on thin ice here and. Uh, uh, but I think he managed to navigate it in some capacity to give us a story at least. Mm. But it kind of makes things a bit nebulous, as you were used earlier, in terms of the mm. storytelling and how the characters are portrayed, especially the women characters. Like, um, I did not think that women had a good turnout in this story. They were either like romantic or sexual obje- objects, or they were just in terms of the writing of the, of the time, just in terms of the time period in which it was written, it, it felt almost um, archaic in terms of their depiction mm-hmm. and then almost sexist as, and chauvinistic as well. Maybe not intentionally, but it just came off that way. I gave the yeah. girls two and a half out of five. All I, right, so you were, you were two and a half. Well, I, I wanted to ask you how you felt... Um, and we didn't talk, by the way, of the whole Sleeping Beauty plot either. Like the whole idea of putting everybody to sleep in the narrative. Like that was kind of weird done through the food, like the whole warship and, and whatever. We, I, I don't even, let's Gold just finger. get past that. Yeah. But again, that's another sort of male gaze thing, isn't it? The whole Sleeping Beauty and like taking advantage while a woman's asleep and the women now kind of flipping the script and trying to get that over on the men. Like there's something going on there. But see, Barrage's trust in um pennington their relationship is never explored so we're never able to view pennington as a proper villain because we don't know how that connection is is nurtured we don't know how the relationship comes about we see him talking with uh, hamarick a little bit in the story but we don't get any really of pennington so she's sort of like already the plant and we don't really figure out how she gets there because she gets blown up so quickly like mercilessly almost you know yeah, which is but like the creature his- that she unleashed and then comes comes back to bite her in the ass. Like, there was no sort of, like, any w- any emphasis of Pennington, besides what's happened thus far, of being competent or intelligent, uh, a villain. Like, she just felt like she was a brat who was over her head. Because she mentioned she's from a rich mm-hmm. family. Bond knows her family. He even mentions it. And this mm-hmm. is what and this is what she's doing. And how does she have, like, an Arabic name when her family is like that's what I didn't understand. Did she change her know. name like yeah. like yeah. Barrage did? We didn't get the section. I, I think that Pennington deserved uh, a par- a few paragraphs like Barrage had about who he was and where he came from, just to explain her character and where and what led her to this. We only get maybe some rich rich some spoiled rich girl with daddy issues, and she refers mm-hmm. to Bond as a cleric and and she a whore. So she's stuck in those kind of di- dichotomies. Yeah, that- it's odd. It's odd. 
Yeah, and then she gets so dispa- dispatched so unceremoniously. I use that word a lot in, in my review of this book, but I just felt there was a lot of unceremonious uh, situations in, in, in here. And Dealey, well, like- you can't really retro- – yeah, Dealey is just the crazy chick, I guess, and that's how you can describe her, but – well, I'd, I'd like to circle back to talk about Beatrice, if I could, for a moment, particularly sure. the way she's introduced, because this took me out of it a little bit. And I, I, do, I do mean this truthfully, like she first appears on page 61 of, of our editions anyway, and I'll just read this bit for you. Uh, he shouted back an affirmative, and as he reached the top, a young girl appeared. She was dressed in a tank top and jeans that were not so much cut-offs as rip-offs, making her look as though a pair of gorgeous legs had been grafted onto a small, exquisite body. Now, fair enough, that's the male gaze, Bond views, Gardner writes that way. That's what it is. We all accept that. But mention young girl cut-off jeans a pair of gorgeous legs grafted onto a small body. I'm thinking this is like a teenage daughter of somebody who's looking after the villa. She's young. She's, you know, nubile. Her face could only be described as cheeky. So you still have that sort of youthful playfulness about her face. Dark eyes danced above a snub nose and a wide smiling mouth. The whole trapped by a, topped by a bubbly black tight curled foam of hair. This, this young girl probably described as young as any of the women in Bond's book or in, in Gardner's Bond books. She's going to become like a potential mate She's going to become a, a love interest, one that Bond tells this girl that he loves her. This is the one that sparks and inspires the Tracy memories, marriage. He buys her that, you know, that, that uh, symbolic bracelet for Christmas. Boy, does he ever fall in love with her quickly. Like, the whole relationship yeah. was fast, convenient, and, and I'm a little put out by how young she's described. Like, did that bother you? Because Bond is in his 40s here, or at least his late 30s. And this might be... I mean, I could read this as I just did. I could read that tank top, the jeans, just like a girl, just like a teenage girl, a school girl. Do you know what I mean? Am well, I am I, I am I am I reading too much into this? Should I just accept all of these as like, oh, she's a young I, I woman in her twenties? I never saw her as a school girl, but I'm automatically on. But then again, I automatically assume that, you know, I, I yeah, I never really saw her as a school girl, to to be honest, uh, but. Uh, she had to be older, and uh, I, I don't know. I never got that she was a schoolgirl. I just got that she was maybe like in her twenties or or something like that. Okay, but, yeah, okay. Well, yeah. I just think, and, but you know, we also get the description of her leaning, like in the palms and tropical fronds to her right. A short white statue of a young satyr thumbed its mouth and produced an almost mirror image of the girl. There's that sort of like coy Lolita thing going on here. There's definitely something young, nubile, and like almost emerging in its spring sexuality or something. There, there's something weird here about Beatrice, the way she's described. The fact that she goes on within the sake of a, within the span of two chapters to become a love interest for Bond, like, I find that this is a real blind spot of the story. And I, mm. I don't get, like, I'll be, I'll be happy. I was happier with her at the end where she showed her resourcefulness and explained how they did the double fake with the explosion. And, you know, she helps Bond get ready for the, with the SWAT team and all of that stuff. And then ultimately she saves his life a second time where when she takes out the guy. So she does have agency in the story, but the way she's introduced to us is not as, it's not like a Tracy who is this sort of, um, trouble regal, regal figure that he fell in love with the, the daughter of this, you know, this mob, this crime boss. And like, this is a girl. And the word girls even used, maybe the connotations of that were a bit different as Bond girl goes. But I mean, 
I want Bond to fall in love with a woman. Like, if he wants to have a relationship with a young girl, okay, maybe legally that's fine, whatever. But I, I don't know, man. Like, I, I don't know how young It was a different time. It was a different time. Even back way back then, it was a different time. You point out another reason why I found like that relationship just didn't buy it whatsoever. And I think that's mm. kind of was that like, yeah, she was definitely young and Bond just falls in love with her so quickly. And um, you keep kind of for, for forgetting that this is an older, older Bond that we're continuing on from the Fleming novels. And this is not this. This is not just like a, a new Bond, you know, in his 30s. Like this is a maybe like almost a 50 something old bond in this case here right so yeah yeah well yeah. maybe not 50s but he, he's definitely older i think and he's through one marriage because you know tracy continues the fleming sweep so it's it's in here i i certainly Short hope marriage mind you <laughs> yeah but i do hope josh that we get more of this character fleshed out in because if he's going to love her and if he's going to think about christmases with her and if he's going to consider himself committed yeah. to a future with her as he certainly does in this book then i sure as hell hope gardner doesn't just throw her away at the start of the next book because <laughs> That'd be hilarious if, but i would be surprised. It, it it would be not hilarious uh, though it would be no. <laughs> disappointing because yeah she she had damn well better make a better appearance in the next book if if we're to take her seriously as a love interest and a mate for bond you know if, she, if she's yeah. the woman that turns him towards whatever, the only other way we can read it is that he, Gardner's Bond, is a desperately lonely man who always pines after what he didn't have and wants to have that that consistent relationship in his life. Like maybe that side of his character we haven't really seen develop yet, but that's the only way I think Beatrice Maria de Ricci could become a, a reasonably appropriate mate for this character, you know? Yeah. Is if he himself is desperate for a love and so he's going to go for a girl that, you know, is resourceful and active and spunky and also, you know, rum, you know, sexual or I don't know, whatever. It's also very what the, talented. What about the rat uh, Ratnikov? That's another girl in this book Ugh, too. She I've already said that she she was stupid. Like she's supposed to be Gorbachev's attaché and she's chasing Bond around most of the time like and she, it's dumb. Like, she's dumb. But she satisfies that that hot Russian girl that we get in the movies that's kind of... Even, like, in know, her dialogue, too. Like, how he wrote her dialogue and whatnot. It was pathetic. It's yeah. so bad. Anyway, I, I failed the girls here. I wanted more from them. I didn't get anything from them. You went two and a half. I went two. Because this is not a memorable one for the girls. Uh, on to locations, my friend. I gave three, and a, three, I gave three out of five... Ischia was probably the best depicted thing in the story. Like I found, I could visualize mm -hmm. I where agree. they were, and if you were going to talk about the writing about you know in the how it de depicts um, how it depicts Beatrice in the garden, and you mentioned like the minads and the statues in the garden and stuff like that. I just felt that was going into the locale writing. Like this is a place maybe that Gardner knew very well, and he wanted to capture that whole like because if, if you think about it, the island right close to Ischia is Capri. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, in the on the Melfi coast, so the, the the situation is is that he's trying to capture this old classical, maybe Roman villa feel to this place, and 
I think this is the closest thing he's came to a travelogue, especially how he wrote the journey from Naples to the island from the ferry. Uh, I found that was part of one of the best parts of the book was I felt he was closest to Fleming was just how he described Naples and taking the ferry across to Ischia and that whole situation like in Naples I found was probably the best written parts of the book um, with with the exception of that forced kind of uh, that forced um, meet cute between Bond and uh, Beatrice that at first you're kind of you, you know, like at first you're suspicious of it, but then it builds into something else in mm-hmm. a sense anyways, or, or it does on the page anyways, on, whether it make an emotional connection to it is a different story. But um, then we have the very descriptive storytelling aboard the Invincible. You can tell that Gardner knows what he's talking about here. Mm-hmm. I, I felt to the point that like I was on the Invincible so much that I know every corner of the ship and Gardner does show finesse in describing this. But there's like a lack of flourish to it. It's like it's just too technical and you get tired of those staterooms after a couple of chapters. You know what I mean? Yeah, but that that's and Gardner then, through and through, isn't it? Like there's so much technical gadgetry or like kind of lingering on the tech spec that we don't get a, an aesthetic feel. Exactly. And in Gibraltar even was just like was, we don't get the aesthetic feel. And I just found the whole thing ridiculous. Like uh barrage is at this rock hotel he walks out after he thinks he thinks he's all you know he's walking away and then he thinks he's won yeah he runs into bond bond is wearing like a freaking um like bomber jacket like maverick or something <laughs> and i i, I just I, he sh- as long as he didn't depict you know bond wearing like aviators or something that would have that would have definitely have completed the image and then we have this whole like chase and it just feel like he'd like chased this thug into the catacomb, into the caverns, and I just felt that oh, just a rat, yeah. isn't it? I mean, he's a rat yeah. in the tunnels. He's yeah. a rat in the tunnels, exactly. And I don't know. I just found it was murky, murky, and just not very descriptive at all. So, despite, so I give locales three out of five, just because I thought the Ischia stuff was well done, but the rest mm-hmm. of it, I, it was just typical Gardner uh, failing to me at the Fleming travelogue. Aside from that Ischia sequence. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I went for three and a half. I think I liked it maybe a wee bit more than you because I did like the way that Gardner seemed to be trying the Is- uh, the Ischia stuff a little bit more, as you said. He, the Villa Capricciani was nice. We did get some nice description there, some nice linger time. Although I didn't like the girl he was with, I liked him being with a woman there who seemed to complete some of his sentences, you know, in that professional sense. There was something good there about that. And I felt like it was the right setting for that. I agree with you. Invincible was was cool to begin with, but then it just became a bit of a drag. Um, Yovelton, R-N-A-S, Yovelton in Somerset, it could be anywhere. It's just a cardboard yes. cutout of a naval base. Um, yeah. The Gibraltar stuff should have been great. But like you said, this is Gardner doing a macro travelogue, never really getting into it outside of macro, the... Yeah. Uh, the Villa Capricciani stuff. So it's all macro and we don't get that travelogue linger that Fleming was so, so very good at. Um, but he has had moments, right? Like Gardner has had moments, like the Hong Kong stuff in a recent book when I think it was, um, which one was it? Um, the No Deals Mr. Bond, right? That's where they end up in in Hong Kong at the end. Like that was good. I felt like that was yes. good stuff. Um and you could sense that Gardner wanted to play around with that because it was tripping, traveling to different islands and stuff. And that Icebreaker was all really cool. Too. Icebreaker as well. Yeah, that's right. Good shout. So there is 
that writer in here. We're just not getting it in this book, really. It's all macro. So, but I did go for three and a half because I appreciated being in Naples. It was somewhere new for Bond. It was somewhere new for us as readers. And good to see Gardner having a bit of fun there. And listen, after two and a half, two and a half, and two, I had a bit of goodwill. I wanted to share it somewhere. So here it, here it was. <laughs> there you go. Uh, on to equipment. Uh, for my part, man, like the story is void of Q branch gadgetry. I don't even think Q's mentioned in the book. Yeah, we, do we got get- Harrier Jets. We get Harrier Jets, and we get a new BMW 5 Series um, to replace the Bentley. I guess, though, I guess because of his role aboard the ship, like, there's not need for Q's involvement, because Bond is, like, a captain and all that. He's just, he's using what's there. That's part of the deep cover. I I don't know. How did you read the equipment here? I found it really tough to score. I gave it three out of five, because we have, like, some... You know, we have we have the utilization of technology, at least in this story. We have the Invincible. We have the Sea Kings. We have that, you know, the, you know Sea Kings are always fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Harrier Jet, you know, and then we have, of course, like the filter device that uh, Blackstone uses, or Blackie, whatever his name is, Blackerson. That's true, uh, yeah, yeah. But I like how <laughs> Bob that, relies that's on his Drake, wits. That, that's the bottom of the barrel, man. You're really scraping there. <laughs> but uh Gardner's Bond, I like how he relied on his wits in the story. Like I really like the Doctor No accession where he basically chooses a room in the villa where he'd be the best protected and then he lays all these traps for you know for people that they would fall over and stuff like that if they try to c- come at him in the house. And then yeah, that he was goes very and fleeting. Sleeps, and then he fleeting. sleeps on top yeah. of the on top of the roof. Like and and, and mm-hmm. that was a really cool. cool setup. Yeah. But then it kind of gets defoiled very quickly as soon as she shows up going, what are you doing? I heard a sound. Mm. And, you know, Mm. like, it just seemed like there was that big setup for, like, the Professor Dent showdown happening on a bigger level with a big rush, you know. But it doesn't happen. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, as I say, I I wasn't quite sure how to score this one because it was deliberately... Yeah, well, that's what... Well, yeah, you did with a three. I, I passed it with a two and a half. It was just void of what we're used to in a Bond book, but that's kind of necessary. But there's certainly nothing that stood out here because even Bond's spycraft at the villa, which is cool, you're absolutely right, and his decision-making there, that says more about him, I think, than the equipment, you know? True. Or does true. it? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for you to argue me up to a three, but... No. To me, no, yeah. I, I feel... I do like the, the Harrier Jets I mentioned on the basis that we did get a dogfight, in a sense, that's true. Well, two, two really. We got what? We got a chase and a dogfight. Yeah, a chase. Two and scenes a dog with sidewanders. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he did yeah, describe that pretty well, in, in my opinion. But like, you can tell that he has a technical know-how and understanding of what how all those things work. But mm-hmm. he just can't make it into. He can't balance that technical knowledge with a, a rousing tale, in my opinion. And he's missing elements. Like the one thing about the Bond novels is that like we get into the head of Bond and how he thinks and whatnot. And it's just like these weird, he has to make Bond feel relevant at the same time. Like he throws in like these pop culture references, like Bond talking, like she calls out, talks about gremlins and Bond makes a thing to, <laughs> to a Spielberg movie. A Spielberg yeah, produced yeah. the movie. He didn't direct it. He produced it. But, but even still, like they're trying to make Bond seem like modern and hip, even though he's like, you know, getting a bit uh, gray around the edges there, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm going back to the writing, of course, here, but I'm just, overall, it's just making me, all these ratings are just making me think of the story as a whole and what Gardner is trying to do with the character and why ultimately I think he's just not getting to where 
Fleming got to in terms of, yeah. Re- yeah. of, of writing Bond. And I think these are the reasons. And one criti- crit- critique I read about it, and I totally agree with it, is that Gardner, you feel from Gardner that he doesn't, that even though he's using realism and he's balancing this with, you know, escape, escape a spy fantasy, he's still not doing what Fleming did, which is believing in the character and in the world that he's writing. Like, no matter what, as ridiculous as any of the Fleming novels can be, to the point where Bond is fighting a giant squid, Fleming's writing made you believe that Bond was in that world, that he took the world that he was in seriously, and the writing mm-hmm. did as well. I find mm-hmm. John Gardner doesn't take the character seriously. And that's why I think there's no emotion in his writing about it, because he can't identify it with it on an emotional level. So he can only really do is just use Bond to kind of show his off his technical knowledge, because that's what he's got. That's what he brings to Bond, is his knowledge of these operations and of these devices and this equipment and this technology. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I think you're hitting something eight books in now, very squarely on the on the head, which is that he is capable of keeping a character alive, but he's not really capable of like it, it feels like Bond is just on life support, waiting for, the, waiting for the right medicine to bring him to a new life again, or waiting to bring him back to life. Like he's kept him on and going through eight books, but this is not as good as Colonel Sun's Bond. And this is not as good as Fleming's Bond. Bond, the man, lives, and there are flashes of him as a character with depth. But you're absolutely right. Most of what most of what Gardner is bringing here is the tech depth. It's the the detail, and that's where he that that's his wheelhouse. That's what he feels safe doing, which is why he leans into it so much. He's not a good character writer for James Bond. Now, we should read other books that Gardner wrote, because Bond was just a small part of his his output, of course. So it'd be interesting to see what he does where he's maybe not harnessed by the expectations of a character already established. True. You know, he... he, but, But yeah, for the sake of this, Bond is very much just alive, and he's... He continues life out of the goodwill and feeds on the goodwill of what built him in the first place. He's not being developed much further, which is why I say I certainly hope that Beatrice has a role to play in the following stories, because I'll be pissed off if I'm asked here to take this young woman as a potential wife for Bond. Although maybe maybe you could say he was playing with something, you know, Christmas time, Bond loses another would-be bride, you know? Like, maybe that was the idea with the explosion, maybe... Maybe which that's what he wanted to do. And a more unfortunate I, I in, in terms of writing and, and lack of originality too, which is like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's pandering almost, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Well, Josh, uh, the scores are in and we had a point different between us. You went for 14 out of 25 for Win, Lose, or Die, and I went for 13 out of 25. So that's one of my lower ones definitely for scoring. But it is interesting that all of this, this what feels like an underwhelming story twice or three times told in details that and characters particularly stuffed with characters that we kind of get bored of it did all start with you complimenting the narrative for being direct linear i said uh straight ahead moving efficiently from set piece to set piece but we've we've ended up here with just poor scores i think passable but not much more yeah like, in terms of plotting, I think the plotting of this story was among Gardner's best so far, in my opinion. But it's just all of those details that need to be expanded upon to make you feel the weight of the narrative that was missing from the story. And yeah. I was kind of felt that the momentum was going towards that midway through, through my reading. And then it just sort of just like collapsed into the usual 
issues. Like I'm getting sick and tired of Bond being captured and and, and for like a, a yeah, ten he, pages, yeah, for ten pages, yeah, and then he just gets out, and I still can't get over like the whole thing with the wrens and stuff like that, and it just seems like maybe it's sexist of me to think that like a bunch of women couldn't take over an aircraft carrier, but the way that Gardner depicted it, it just felt mm-hmm. like I just didn't buy it, you know? And yeah. then, yeah. so then he had to work in this thing about the Wrens poison everybody. And that was kind of clever to think about it. But at the same time, this, the visualization of that just bothered me so much. And, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe I should have, maybe because you know what, they're terrorists, they're playing part in the game. They were recruited. They're ideologically inclined to that direction. Like Pennington was, so, you know, like maybe they should have the respect of of us being taken out by a black ops team that they were worthy of a black ops team. But I just didn't get that in the writing. You know, I just felt like how Garner depicted them, they were just girls. Like how he how he depicted them, they were just like they they had the upper hand because they used the drugging. But there mm-hmm. was with the exception of that one person and this and Dealey, there wasn't a lot of characterizations of the other Wrens that were there. You know, there was only no, a bunch of right. token characters right. that they described. And I uh-huh. just felt that, you know, like they should have, I should have felt that they were worthy of being taken out by a black ops team and not just like slaughtered. <laughs> you know, you- <laughs> That's right. That's an excellent point because it just becomes a footnote, doesn't it? In, in the, yeah. in the denouement. And also that whole thing about the drugging, like operation sleeping beauty, it was done. Like this is also derivative because um, Gardner used that in for special services. Remember with Nina Bismacher and the NORAD takeover, he drugged the ice cream and all that stuff. Like I know That's that right. was zany. That was zany, but it was a bit more entertaining than what we got here. And yes. like that whole book was zany, and I'm happy to go along with zany because this aims for relativity and it aims for realism, but it doesn't always hit or deliver that, as you say. Like these women, as they're presented in the story, could never have taken over this aircraft carrier. Because James Bond's not the only one who didn't eat that day. Do you know what I mean? Like, come on. Yeah. Give, I just felt give, like... Give, give me something more. John Gardner saw Top Gun and wanted to have Bond as a, as a fighter <laughs> pilot at some point. Because why or not? Or just wanted to cash in. Just wanted to cash in on what he you know was po- knew was popular. Or that too, yeah. But it's important, too, that we always credit the fact that Gardner does know what he's talking about when it comes to these texts, these details, because he was, of course, a special ops Marine. So he's got he's got the chops, but he doesn't have the character writing, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Well, buddy, that puts us beyond our halfway point with the Gardner stories. And we are ending Bond by Numbers, of course. This is our final season, but we're going to continue the John Gardner sweep across on our um, literary podcast lighting the pipe. So we'll probably continue the Bond novels there. Um, you can catch us on the socials at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com if you'd like to email us here on the show, or you can find us on Instagram at bbn underscore pod. And as we as we step further, Josh, into our final season, and we start the new year off with this episode, I want to give listeners a heads up on what's coming. So coming up next, we have Jeff's take on the three non-bonds and this time he will be doing the ipcris file uh starring michael kane so we'll be getting that review up very soon and we'll wait till after ipcris file is done and then we'll tell you what what scott will be doing for the three non-bonds all right well thanks as always for listening and checking out bond by numbers uh we will return soon with the ipcris file take care bye